You're listening to the Nomad Skeptic Podcast, brought to you by NomadSkeptic.com. What's the digital nomad lifestyle all about? Is it really possible to live and work overseas, traveling from one exotic destination to the next, making money from nothing more than a laptop and an internet connection? Or is the DN concept a pipe dream, an illusion, an elaborate hoax? Trying to find and share answers to these questions and more. Here's your host, JLB. Thank you, Sereno. Yes, this is episode number four of the Nomad Skeptic podcast, brought to you by nomadskeptic.com. And have we got a guest for you today? When we talk about the digital nomad lifestyle, one of the big things is how much does it cost to go from one city to another? What are the cost of living in these kinds of cities? How much will it cost you to be based? in a place like Kuala Lumpur or Chiang Mai for a month or for six months. And who can you trust when people say, oh, you can live here for $500 US or you can live here for $1,000 US. Can you take those claims on face value or are there ways to verify what's being said? Well, our guest today has put together what I think is an ingenious app and a fantastic website that's dedicated to allowing people to track their own expenses and share them with other people. So today we'll be talking about his app, his website, his travels, and what he's noticed about the digital nomad scene. We've got a lot to talk about today. I'm talking with Thomas, coming to us from England, I believe. You're currently back in the UK. Is that the case? Uh, yeah, that's correct. But you're not originally from England. Where are you from? No, I'm from uh, Sweden, specifically the south of Sweden in a city called Kalmar. Fantastic. And how long have you been doing this traveling, this long-term traveling thing? So it's been slightly over one and a half year now. So you've got a bit of experience doing this. Well, here's what I want to talk about with you today. We'll have three sections, just like normal. In section one, we'll talk about you and how you first heard of the DN concept. And then in section two, we'll talk about how you got into it, your experiences over the last 18 months. And in section three, we'll talk about the DN scene, the subculture and the lifestyle. We'll throw in one or two movie clips along the way. And of course, we'll talk about your app and website. Does that all sound good? Yeah, sounds perfect. Fantastic. All right, so let's start off at the start then. Tell us about yourself. You're in the UK right now, but you're originally from Sweden. Give us a bit of an overview. Who are you and what do you do? All right, so uh, my name is Thomas Voxer and um, I'm a web and app developer. So I'm Currently staying in England and will be staying here over the summer. Okay, so tell us a little bit about Sweden. You grew up in the south of Sweden. What was it that made you want to go and travel in the first place? So I actually started um, coding when I was very young. I think at 12, I started coding in C++. And um, over the years, I noticed that coding and programming in general was something I wanted to do as my like main career. And uh, I kept on coding even with the years that went by so by the age of like 16 and 17 when people started looking to like which careers they wanted to pick and which jobs they wanted uh, I already was set on programming and coding so after school I actually didn't take um, take on high school or college I went uh, and started freelancing instead so I freelance for or in web design and actually managed to make a decent amount of income from it because in the beginning I didn't think I had the skill to compete with others but 
I quickly noticed I was overthinking it because I actually ended up having very good reviews uh, early on, which led me to actually have my full income from a site called freelancer.com. So you were using freelancer.com. These days, the ones that I hear about the most are Fiverr, Upwork, these kinds of things. For people who've never used one of these websites, can you explain the process? How does someone get into freelancing? How do the clients come about? You know, How does the pricing work, especially at the start? Explain all of this to us. All right. So it's kind of tough in the beginning because obviously as an employer, you wouldn't pick someone who's new and have no ratings. So if you're established on the website and you have a good rating and uh, yeah, there's no doubt about it, then you actually get picked. So the way it works is that the employer would post a project with uh, a little description of what he wants to get done. And uh, workers or freelancer would then put their bids on that project. So the higher rating you have, the higher up on the list it will be. So as a new freelancer, you will actually have a lot of trouble since you will be in the very, very bottom of this list. So your main goal is to actually put your pricing extremely low just so you can get your rating up and therefore put yourself up in that list. And do you remember what your pricing was at the start when you first made your account with Freelancer? Do you remember how much you were charging for your first few projects? Uh, yeah, I do actually. So I was charging on average like $10, but it wasn't like per hour. It was more like per, per project. So for me, charging $10, I would only get $5 out of it. So it was like very tough to get income from it. The only intent I had in the beginning was to gain more reviews and basically get a five star from everyone. And how long would this uh, project take? If you were charging $10 and you were getting $5, on average, how much time would you have to put into each project for it to come to completion? On average, I would say a project takes 20 to 30 minutes if it's just a small like project where you have to fix something like small mistakes on a website and so on but if it's a bigger project you can actually charge by hour too but i think the most beneficial one as a new freelancer is the one with smaller projects so you can get as many reviews as possible yeah i see and so are you still doing freelance work with freelancer to this day and uh, no I actually stopped using it because it's kind of high uh, fees. So if you're a new freelancer and you don't have like the super pro premium package, uh, they actually take $5 plus uh, a certain percent. I don't know exact rates today, but back then they actually took a big portion of me since I focus on the smaller projects. And I know it's against their rules, but the best thing you can do is to find clients on Freelancer and other websites and then try to move them over so you have them as a contact because then you can avoid the fees and you can actually build a more stable relationship. I see. I see. And so in your case now, you're working for clients directly. That's how you're making your primary income these days? Uh, yeah, exactly. And I'm actually still working with one client that I found through Freelancer. Even just yesterday we worked. So it's very cool to see the benefits of those sites. But you have to keep in mind, you won't get super rich from those sites alone. You would have to like 
take a next step and grow out of it. Yeah, I completely understand. Let me tell you why I like the idea of Fiverr, Freelancer, these sorts of websites. It's part of what they call the gig economy, and it is people having to work their way up from the bottom and prove that they're good at what they're doing. So if somebody comes along and they're a graphic designer or they're a voiceover artist or anything like this, they have to start at the start, like you said, try and get the reviews. If they're good, if they're putting in the work, if they assist their clients with revisions and these things, then over time, they're going to work their way to the top, earn more money and make some good money from it. But if they're not good at what they're doing or they're not improving or they're not trying to help their clients, they're not putting the effort in, then they're probably not going to rise to the top. And I think there's something very meritocratic about this. The good will rise to the top and the people who are not so good or not putting in the effort, they're not going to have the success. Yeah, that's correct. And so you're someone who came along, you started off at the bottom and you were charging very little for the projects, but you put in the effort. And in the end, it's worked out pretty well for you because now you're you're making enough money to travel the world. Yeah, exactly. So I'm very grateful for Freelancer, even though they do take a big portion of what I earned, because I don't think without it, I would have found a client base I have today. I love it. That's fantastic. What happened when you told your parents or your family or your friends or the people from school that you weren't going to college? Was that a big deal or did people understand you had your own plans, your own vision? Um, I don't think they really understood. I think I could have come off as lazy almost uh, because when you work with computers, obviously for me, I would sit at home and work long hours and actually like keep learning and also work on the side to get some money. So in their eyes, I probably looked like very lazy and irresponsible, but I always always had a goal uh, for what I was doing and I was very determined to keep on doing just coding and programming. Excellent. Now, we're going to talk about venture cost in a moment, but I've been able to track how much you spend in Kuala Lumpur because that's a city that I was in before coming to Kuching where I am now. And so I was able to look at the costs that you tracked in Kuala Lumpur and your expenditure was very similar to mine as well. Are you currently able to travel the world entirely from the money you make from freelancing or do you have to supplement it with money back you know, earned back in Sweden or in other places working normal jobs. Are you at the point where you are completely location independent with your work? Uh, Yeah, Uh, I actually make a little bit more than I spend. And that's kind of interesting because in Sweden, I would actually pay exactly like my rent was what I earned. So now traveling, I'm actually saving money. That is fantastic. This is part of the digital nomad concept, isn't it? That you can do what Tim Ferriss calls geo-arbitrage. You can live in places that are less expensive than your home. You're still making the money online. You're actually financially better off traveling, which sounds completely crazy. People think of traveling as being an expensive thing. But if you're working online, traveling can save you money. It's crazy when you think about it. Yeah, I would have never thought. And that was actually the reason it took me a while to start traveling too. Because in my mind, I was thinking, oh, I would need to stay in hotels and I would need to get rid of my apartment and I would need to do this and that. And I think I had an estimate back in time when I was about 25, uh, or no, sorry, uh, 23. So I was thinking an average month would cost me about $2,000 which was a little bit too high for me at the moment. 
So I did actually set a plan for myself to work as hard as I possibly could. And before I turned 30, I would start traveling. Because uh, me being from Sweden, from a smaller town, I didn't know about Airbnb and every other accommodation service there is out there. So I always thought that hotels were like the only thing because that's the only thing I've ever seen while I've been out traveling with my family and so on. Well, I'm glad you brought up the age and the goals. Can I ask you now, how old are you as we speak here in 2019? So I'm 26 now. I actually um, travel way earlier than I originally planned. And there is a little bit of story behind that. Well, that's what we're here for, to talk about these stories. So let me just get a recap then. So you went to high school, you got into coding as a hobby. You didn't go to college. You had your own vision. You worked your way up through freelancer.com, doing jobs, projects. You built up your own client base. That's now sufficient for you to travel the world. And now you're working on this side project, VentureCost.com, which we'll talk about later in the call. Is that a pretty fair overall synopsis of the path of Thomas up to this point in time? Yeah, that's pretty perfect. Excellent. Now, tell us about digital nomadism. And I know that some people don't like the word digital nomad because it has certain connotations. But this basic idea of earn your money online and travel to low cost of living countries. When did you first hear of this? So I actually heard about it. I think it was a year or so after I discovered that I wanted to travel and that I needed those $2,000 a month and so on. So I think my friend was over and I told him that I was like tired of sitting at home, just doing the same thing every day and like almost not being able to pay the bills because Sweden is kind of expensive. And um, then he told me about a few websites because he was in a job at the moment where he did travels uh, mostly within Sweden but sometimes even outside the country and he told me about sites he have heard of uh, during those travels that actually provided like accommodation prices and so on and at the time I think he showed me nomad list to begin with and uh, it didn't really help me a lot because it was still kind of expensive pricing looking at it at first glance but obviously pricing can compare from person to person okay so nomad list most of the listeners here at nomad skeptic will be familiar with nomad list but this is one of the main websites on the internet today for people to compare prices or cost of living amounts for different cities and if you go to nomadlist.com right now it's a pretty cool user interface or a front page if you like they have images of number one changu bali Number two, Chiang Mai. Number three, Buenos Aires. And it gives you a basic overview of the weather and what they say is a rough estimate for a cost of living in that city. So you first saw nomadlist.com, are you saying a couple of years ago you first saw this website? Uh, Yeah, exactly. So my take on Nomadlist at the time was that I wanted to see where people actually went to begin with. And uh, I had as a goal back then that I wanted to visit the popular Chiang Mai, obviously, and also Kuala Lumpur. And you think this was about two years ago you first heard of Nomad List? So this was about three years ago I heard about it. So it only took me about a year later to actually start traveling. Wow. So you got this idea in your mind of, hey, I can do this. It's not going to be as expensive as I thought. And about a year later, you were on the road seeing the world. 
Yeah, that's correct. That's terrific. It was a couple of years for me was my turnaround time from when I first heard of this and got my mind around it to actually jumping on the plane. It was a couple of years, but it's a terrific experience, isn't it? When you jump on the plane and you're actually doing it, it's a phenomenal feeling, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. All right. So I think we've got a good introduction to who you are and what you're doing. You're in the UK right now. Is this just travel or do you know people who are there? What takes you to that part of the world? So I usually travel to cheaper places and uh, obviously UK is not one of those places. It's very expensive here, but I was lucky enough to find a cat sitting or home sitting gig where I'm actually just taking care of one cat and in exchange I'm getting this house for two whole months. Okay, so get this. The previous guest was a lady named Suzanne and this is what she does as well on episode three of the Nomad Skeptic podcast. She explained that she does cat sitting or pet sitting as well and that's how she's able to travel the world on a shoestring budget if she chooses to do so. She's not paying her accommodation because she's pet sitting and you're doing the exact same thing. Uh, Yeah, so this is my first time doing it and um, I don't mind it. Obviously, it's very comfortable not having to care about the accommodation costs. So you can focus on maybe putting a bit more into expenses and live life while it's actually very cheap doing so. That is fantastic. How did you get into that? How did you first hear of pet sitting or house sitting? What was your introduction to it? So it was actually my girlfriend that uh, found out that her friend did it and basically asked for advice how to do it. And the way it works was that you kind of needed to sign up for these websites. I don't know any name, but they cost about like $100 and you will be able to find listings of people looking to uh, find people to house it for you. So we didn't go that route, however. We did a free site and actually managed to find a couple, even though there was over 100 people looking to house it. So even though we were two weeks late and we didn't have any reviews or anything, I think we had a profile picture and a very, very short description, we still managed to find and, yeah, basically get picked by um, the owners. Terrific. And the cat that you're house-sitting for right now, are you getting along with the cat? Are you friends or is it a bit standoffish? Oh, no, he's very, very comfortable with us. So he's actually taking care of himself it doesn't even feel like a job whatsoever so we're very very lucky to have this that is fantastic yeah when i was chatting with suzanne she was saying that the cat that she's looking after right now she's in no she's in tokyo she's in tokyo japan and she's looking after a cat called mr handsome and apparently they're not getting along too well but that's one of the risks that you take when you get into pet sitting isn't it that uh You might not get along with the pet, but you get free accommodation, which must just save a fortune for the people who do this on a constant basis. Yeah, uh, the accommodation is really the most expensive part, like way above flights and expenses. So if you can get along with the pets, you will have a big, big opportunity. Terrific. And I'm just looking at your list here on Venture Cost. You've got upcoming, you'll be in London. But right now you're in Thatcham in the UK. Which part of the UK is that in? Like what's the nearest major city? So I think the nearest one is Oxford. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's an hour north. And London is about two hours east. Excellent. And are you enjoying your time there so far? Oh, yeah. It's 
perfect, honestly. We have had pretty good weather too, and uh, that's something we've been missing, obviously, since we have stayed in Europe ever since January. Perfect. Well, I think we've got a great introduction. You first heard of the nomadism thing a few years ago. Have you read or are you familiar with the work of Tim Ferriss and his four-hour work week? Uh, No, not at all, actually. That's okay. We don't have to talk about him. I think some people get the impression, because I obviously send you guys an idea of what I want to talk about. I think some people get the impression that I'm a Tim Ferriss fan or something like this. The truth is, I've got a lot of criticisms of Tim Ferriss, but from what I can tell, it does seem as though he's had a big influence on a lot of people who are doing this DN thing. So that's why I like to talk about that. But we've got the introduction out of the way. Now let's get into the fun part. Tell us about Venture Cost. And I'm looking at your Venture Cost profile right now. I can see all the cities you've been to. This is the main reason I wanted to speak to you because you've been to Kuala Lumpur. I was able to compare your cost of living with mine, very similar. You've also been to Bulgaria, which is high on my list of places to go. And you've been to the Mecca, Chiang Mai. So I thought this is a guy I need to speak to. And the reason I was able to see all of this is because of your website, VentureCost.com. So tell us about this. How did you get the site started? And how does it work? So uh, VentureCost is a web app that tracks uh, your expenses while traveling and also provides the average cost for trips of every city that people have visited only from VentureCost. Uh, So it would show an average of expenses, accommodation and everything to get a clue of how much a city would really cost to travel to. And the big difference between this and other sites is that this is actually from people traveling rather than pulling numbers from a third party. So the idea is that users have an app on their phone and when they make purchases, they just input the information as they go along. Uh, Yeah, exactly. So it's only a web app uh, at the moment. So it works obviously in a phone and uh, on any other device that has a browser. Well, let me explain to the listeners who might not have seen VentureCost yet how it works. If somebody goes to the website, there's a number of users there who you can click on. Now, the main one at the moment is obviously Thomas's account. So if you click on Thomas's account, it brings up on the screen a small profile photo, a strapping, handsome young lad. Thomas, there he is in his blue shirt. Then it comes up with all the countries that he's been to and the ones that he has been to are in color. So it's a world map. You can click on any of those. And then below that, it comes up with city after city or town after town. And it says how much he spent while he was there, how many days he was there for, when he was there, and then gives the average cost per month based on the amount that they spent divided by the days. This is a very simple, terrific user interface. Was this all you or have you got a team helping you with this? Uh, no, it's all me, actually. Uh, it's gone through a lot of revisions because when I started working on it, I wasn't as good uh, at design as I am today. So it's been a very long learning process, and it's actually been more than a year now. So it's a very long time building it, but it's still something that is just a side project. So it's not my full attention still. And it's free to use, of course. It's still early days, and it's completely free to use. So when I found your profile, which I think you linked to on Reddit Digital Nomad, And I saw your profile, I went through it, and then I saw Kuala Lumpur, and I thought, well, let me compare what I'm spending compared to this guy. And so I clicked on it, and it seems very comparable to what I was spending. When you click on the person's update for a city or on their page for a city, it comes up with a breakdown, the groceries, restaurant, household items, shopping, even errands, and then unrelated as well. And it gives you a list across the month of how much they've spent day by day. And I can tell you that, yeah, you're roughly, expenditure about uh, $600 US a month 
I believe that's true because I've been there and you can definitely get by on about 600 US per month. Oh yeah, we were actually living pretty comfortably in Kuala Lumpur too because the food is very, very cheap and actually very, very good. I think that's one of my favorite places when it comes to food. I was blown away by the food options. There are a lot of restaurants near where I was where you could just go in, get a bit of rice on the plate and then put whatever you want. You want vegetables? Take vegetables. You want chicken curry or you want seafood? Just add whatever you want and then they come and give you the price. And typically you're looking at 10 or 15 ringgit for all the food you could possibly want to eat. Uh, yeah, for me, it was actually at just a dollar every day. And the plate I usually have for breakfast was a meal called wonton mee, which is basically a noodle dish with some kind of sauce and some meat on top. I'm not exactly sure uh, about the details about the sauce or if it's even called a sauce, but it's a big, big plate and it very much fills you up. And it's not even a dollar. So you're talking about, what, three or four ringgit, basically? Yeah, so it would be, I think I was five ringgit or something. I forgot the currency conversion, but I think around five. That sounds like a good deal. I was usually paying for my, because I usually have like a lunch slash dinner later in the afternoon. I don't normally eat breakfast. And yeah, the places I was going to, 10 or 15 ringgit, and I would get a massive plate of food. And it was, it was unbelievable. I hadn't, I hadn't heard people explaining just how good the food in Kuala Lumpur is, but it's one of Kuala Lumpur's, I think, best features. Oh yeah, I think so too. It's my definite favorite in Asia so far when it comes to food. Terrific. Well, I want to talk more later in the call about some of the other places that you've been to. But let's just focus on VentureCost.com for now. So what are your visions? What are your dreams with VentureCost? Is it something that you see just being a side project for you? Or are you hoping to develop it one day into a larger platform that maybe you can make your primary concern? Uh, yeah. So the goal for VentureCost is obviously to try it out to begin with because I've had a lot of people come and go. Tracking is obviously something that takes a bit of time from people traveling, and I understand that. But I think the future goal is to build it and keep building it until it can make me enough income to get rid of freelancing completely. Well, I hope that you're successful with that plan because just from the small amount that I've used the site, I think it's terrific. And at the moment, and this is not a criticism of the guy who runs Nomad List because he took the time to build it. It's a useful tool, so if he wants to now start charging people for it, that's entirely understandable. I've got no problem with that. But now that Nomad List is charging money for people to access it, and the information, it isn't always clear where that's coming from, this, I think, is better because you can click on a profile, such as Thomas, see how much he's spent in a city. And if you've got experience in that city, and you know that this is a reliable report, it makes it more easy to believe the other cities that they report on. So in your case, I know that your report for KL is accurate. I've been there. I'm more likely to believe what you say about Plovdiv in Bulgaria because I've already seen that you're accurate when it comes to Kuala Lumpur, if you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And it's completely free. So that's VentureCost.com. I'll put a link to that in the show notes below. Roughly how much time do you have to put into this each week, this particular project? So I think administrating it, it takes not only... 30 minutes a day because the work I do in the morning when I wake up is to add uh, pictures for cities. So obviously I don't have a picture for every city in the world. 
So whenever people start tracking for a city and it's not yet a picture, I get a message about it. So adding pictures is one of them and also going through the trip approval process, which is a thing I do after every trip is completed by user, just to make sure they input everything correctly and making sure that there is no uh, spike in any data or like false data basically. Yeah, to make sure there's no outliers that sort of skew the data. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. So do you have to teach yourself things like statistics? And I mean, there's a lot that goes into a website like that. It's not just web development. Do you have to teach yourself things as you're going along? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of things I've learned along the process. So in the beginning, I thought I had it all figured out. But then as you go more and more into it, you notice that there's problems, which are obviously good. So with time, you actually learn more and more. That makes perfect sense. Well, I wish you the best of luck with Venture Cost. My plan is to use it. I'm going to Vietnam next after my little stint here in Kuching. And from the day that I arrive in Ho Chi Minh City, I'm going to be tracking my costs and I will be one of your contributors to the cost of Vietnam. That's awesome. Looking forward to it. And I'll put a link to my Venture Cost profile as well. So in the show notes of this call, if you're listening in a few months' time, in a few years' time, you can see what my costs were for Ho Chi Minh City and any other cities that I might go to. Now, Thomas, we're halfway through the call. I like to break these up with a bit of an interlude. And I sent you an email saying, give me a clip, a movie clip, a film clip that we can use to chat about in the middle of the call. And you sent me a clip from a film called Yes Man, 2008, starring Jim Carrey. I'm about to play it now for the listeners. But before I do, you set the scene for us. Tell us, what is the Jim Carrey character doing? Who's he speaking with? What are we about to listen to? So yeah, Jim Carrey is sitting on a bench and he's minding his own business while his friend suddenly appears and uh, he's trying to push him to do things like more than just working a regular job, doing the same thing every day. And um, in the beginning, I don't know, I think his name is Carl. Uh, Carl is very like against the whole idea of doing something more than he's currently doing. But uh, his friend is trying to get him to this seminar where he's basically explaining that life has so much more to offer if you just say yes uh, to everything, which isn't always the best case, but that's what this clip is about. Excellent. Yeah, so they're sitting on a bench in front of a bank, and uh, let's pick it up from there. What have you been doing? Oh, I've been all over the map, man. I've lived. I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. I ate bat and laos. I shot a cow with a bazooka. I'm not proud of that last one, but I did it, man. Wow, sounds wild. Want to know my secret? I'm a yes man. The word yes has changed my life here. No, thanks. I'm fine. Fine, I wipe my ass with fine. Wow. Okay. You don't want to work here, Carl. Yeah, I do. No, you don't. Why don't you take this rock, throw it at that bank and shatter the window? No, thanks. Then ask me if I want to. Do you want to throw that rock at the bank? Yes! Oh, my God! What are you, nuts? Go to the seminar, Carl. Carl, live your life! You won't regret it! I like that clip because I... I wasn't in his exact 
situation. I've still been pretty driven throughout my life, but I think I like that clip because I was kind of overthinking this whole traveling thing because obviously I didn't think I had the money. I didn't think I could do it. There were so many things stopping me, but after I started traveling, I was quickly realizing that it was all in my head. And uh, actually after seeing this movie, I didn't really do like a challenge towards myself, but I definitely started saying yes to more things in life. And I think that's the whole meaning of the movie and the clip itself. Because once you say yes to stuff, you will put yourself out of your comfort zone. And that's what you really want to do. That is perfect. And it makes a lovely segue into the next section of the call. So I want to talk a little bit about your experiences doing this DN thing. You've been on the road now for, I think you said about 18 months. Tell us a little bit about some of the highs and some of the lows, some of the things that you've experienced that maybe you weren't expecting. Tell us about the last 18 months and the effect that it's had on your life. All right. So starting out, everything was like completely new to me. Uh, I have been to Asia before, but that was in Japan. So my first destination was in Bangkok, Thailand. And that's a very big shift from Sweden. Everything is like very cheap. It's very good weather. And uh, the people are more, they just look more happy. Like it's a good environment. And I think that benefits me in other ways because I felt way more productive actually moving out from Sweden and started traveling. It's common for Swedish young people to travel, isn't it? Generally, young Swedes do travel a little bit. Uh, yeah, it's. I've actually seen just a few Swedish people, but I know there's a lot of people from the Netherlands traveling. So anywhere up in North Europe, I think it's very popular to just drive to get to the hotter weather and cheaper prices. It's funny that you should say that. This is what we call a sync, a synchronicity. You mentioned people from uh, the Netherlands. Last night, I went out with somebody to uh, get to know them. I met them at a cafe. The only other Western person in this part of Kuching who I've seen. And we went and had a beer or two at a local pub. And where was he from? Holland. And he was a lovely fellow. And that's one of the cool things about doing this. You get to meet people from around the world. How many people would you say that you've met on the road who you think you'll see again in the future, though? Because this is one of the problems. You meet people, but is it just a short-term kind of interaction, if you get what I mean? Yeah. So in total, like a complete total of everyone I've met, I think it's up to like 50 people I've actually talked to during that one year I had in Asia. And out of those 50, I would honestly say about um, maybe five or six people are still people I immediately contact or even check up on where they are to go to the same places together and so on. Well, five or six is actually impressive, really. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some people out there, and this could be me in a 12 months time where a lot of the people we meet, we have good times together and we get to know each other and it's terrific. But, you know, in six or 12 months time, you, you lose contact, especially for me because I don't have Facebook, you see. So unless we're exchanging emails or we're following each other's blog or something, a lot of people I'm going to meet, I'm not going to see again. And this is one of the reasons, Thomas, why I want to do this podcast is to chat with people who've done this for six months, 12 months, five years and find out how this affects them. How does it affect you to meet all these people, many of whom you're never going to see again? Yeah, you kind of get the feel of it after you've met a few people because 
you realize that you're not meant to stay connected with a few people. There's honestly the majority of people I met on the road are people I can like tolerate and we can have a fun time. But I don't think it's one of those people I would actively try to meet up with once more or travel together with. So actually finding people that are closer to you in such a short amount of time is rare. But obviously there's nothing stopping you from meeting them up in another country or even staying longer in a place together. Yeah, I completely understand. You're currently traveling with your girlfriend, is that right? I think that's how it came across earlier. Are you traveling with somebody else? Uh, yeah, that's correct. You did mention that you were thrown in to traveling, and I was hoping, Thomas, you could spend a couple of minutes just explaining the background story there. All right. So after I realized that I really wanted to travel and it wasn't that expensive as I thought it was going to be, well, it took me like one year after that, and I actually met someone online who is now my girlfriend. And um, she's from America, and we only talked for three months, and then we decided to meet up in Sweden. So she actually got rid of everything she owned and took a big risk, and we met in Sweden, and everything worked out perfectly, luckily. And... Um, our initial plan was for her to stay in Sweden for three months and then extend it because you can always extend a Schengen visa or at least that's what we thought because we were at month two, meaning we only had 30 days left in Sweden before we would have to extend. And uh, once we looked up the visa rules, it turned out that you can extend. However, you cannot extend it while being in uh, in our case, in Sweden. So she would have to go back all the way to America to apply to get an extension and then come back. And we didn't really like that plan because obviously it would cost a bit of money to get her going there and then coming back and so on. And we didn't know how long she would stay in America before she was coming back. So we actually took a big step and started traveling when uh, we realized that there was too much complications getting the extension going. So with only 28 days left, I actually got rid of my apartment and sold away majority of my stuff. And that's how we got on the road and booked a ticket to Bangkok. Our initial plan was to go to Chiang Mai, but being new to traveling, we stayed in Bangkok first because we wanted to avoid as many flights as possible because we were not as comfortable doing the whole traveling thing back then. So because of her visa situation, you were kind of hurried up a little bit, it expedited, like you wanted to do this anyway, but it kind of pushed you into doing it quicker. Yeah, exactly. So my initial plan was to do this in a few years um, at the time, but it ended up being actually within just two and a half months or so. So I, I got pushed into it way quicker than expected. And I couldn't be more grateful for it because that's when I also noticed that I was just overthinking every single detail. That is fantastic. The Cosmos basically did you a favor. Yeah, definitely. Because that does make a big difference, doesn't it? Uh, some people are traveling completely alone. Other people are traveling with a partner. And that does make a huge difference to some of the potential uh, goods and bads that can happen when you're traveling. It's a very different experience when you're with a partner, isn't it? Yeah, I actually think so. I've never actually traveled completely alone. I travel with friends, I travel with family, and now I'm traveling with my girlfriend. And 
I think that if you do travel alone in the long run, it can get tough since you're going to miss your family more by not having anyone around you. And sometimes you'll go days without speaking to another soul. You'll wake up, go to the gym, come home, go to the cafe, sit there for a few hours, come home, have something to eat, go to bed without speaking to a single other soul. This is the reality for people. Unless you're living in a DN hub and unless you're traveling with a partner, then there's a good chance you're going to spend days and days with no real human interaction, no real human connection. Yeah, that is correct. And I think that's also the reason why some people don't really like the whole lifestyle in the long run, because when I go on Reddit and other communities, I read a lot about people saying it's not a sustainable lifestyle, like not even for a few months or even a year. Uh, And I think those people come from a background where they do travel alone and they're not very good at uh, actively finding people around them. I think you're right. I think some of them, maybe their social skills aren't developed enough to handle the the DN lifestyle, especially in places that are not DN hubs. But at the same time, in a place like Kuching, and I love Kuching, so I hope no one ever takes anything I say about this as a criticism. But in Kuching, there aren't even any meetups. So in KL, it was easy for me to go on meetup.com and go and meet people. But if you go to some of the smaller areas like Kuching, meetup.com doesn't work so if you're sitting in a cafe and there's no other westerners and and the locals they're doing their own thing you know they're they're minding their own business and you're minding yours you're not going to meet as many people to talk to as you're used to in your home country not even close and no well for me it's actually the opposite because i'm coming from a background where i was actively working remotely from home and back then i was working very hard just to be able to afford to travel. So now being a little bit older, more experienced, obviously earning a little bit more with time, I actually have more free time. And I think that's also the issue when it comes to digital nomads. Because if you go from a background of already having a stable remote uh, income, you won't have any issues or you won't have the same issues when it comes to the social uh, aspect. However, if you come from a background where you suddenly quit your job, like a normal uh, nine to five, and then you start to pick up remote work just a week before you start traveling, I think that's when it gets tough because that forces you to be in the same place. Like it forces you to be at home or in um, places, just keep working, working, working to be able to afford the whole lifestyle. Yeah, that's an excellent point. If somebody goes from a normal Western lifestyle where they work and they have colleagues and they have regular friends and acquaintances to doing the DN thing, that's a huge change. Whereas somebody like you, you were already working on your own before you left your home country and maybe working too much, which I can relate to, spending too much time on the computer by yourself. So all of a sudden when you start traveling, you've got more time if you want to to go out and meet people. And you've already made that adjustment to spending lots of time on your own. So you were probably better prepared for this than maybe some people who quit their jobs and then head overseas. You probably had more time to adjust from what you're saying. Oh, yeah, definitely. For me, the transition, even though I had uh, all these doubts um, and was like overthinking every little little, once I started traveling and I actually went to Bangkok, it was like a whole new world opened up. I didn't even know what to think because all these doubts were like made up 
Yeah, so it sounds like you're saying you had a bit of anxiety before you went and it, was, it wasn't until you arrived at your destination that you realized, yes, this is the right thing to do. Uh, yeah, it was actually exactly like that. Excellent. Well, with this fall is quickly getting towards the end of the hour. They always go so quickly. There's a few questions that I'm hoping to ask all of the guests on the Nomad Skeptic podcast. So let me put a few questions to you. Based on the digital nomads or the people leading this lifestyle that you've met, what do you make of the others that you've met? The people, you know, you said you've met maybe 50 people who you've gotten to know. Generally, what kind of observations have you made of them? Who, who are these people who are doing this? Have you noticed any patterns? Um, yeah, there is a few patterns I've noticed. I noticed one type of people that are more about the backpacker lifestyle and they're very much living on a like minimum budget, mostly staying in hostels rather than uh, Airbnbs. Based on what you've seen, do the people seem like they're happy with the lifestyle and like they're content? Some of them on YouTube, you know, the YouTube DNs make it seem like it's such this happy, exciting lifestyle. But based on what you've seen, is that really the case? Or are these people maybe leading more normal, even boring lives than, than it might seem on YouTube? I think it depends a lot on the person. But in general, I think that people, some people do have a front. Because if you come from a perspective where you already spend a decent amount of money in like a Western country and then you go to Southeast Asia, the economic aspect isn't going to be that big of a change and you're probably going to get more for your money being in Asia. And for those people, I think they're just enjoying life. But then you also have the one type of uh, people who are trying to make this lifestyle work. And I think if you're those kind of people, you're going to struggle because obviously being in Asia, you want to be outside and enjoy everything, enjoy the weather if you're just not used to being in a hot environment. And if you basically go and you don't really have an established income, you're going to have a harder time actually finding peace around you. Everything is going to sound very stressful because you know that you could have been at home instead and made money instead of going out for that one beer. So you have seen a few people who maybe weren't bringing enough money and they were a bit stressed, like they weren't enjoying things because money was a problem. Yeah, exactly. Like you wouldn't be able to see them. So for me, my schedule is very, very flexible. I, I can take a long time off if I want to. And uh, I think that's a big difference because if you're working remotely for a company or if you're uh, struggling with your own business, then you're basically going to be inside for long, long hours. And it defeats the whole purpose. What's the point of being in a low cost of living country if you're spending all the time behind a computer and not enjoying it? You might be able to earn more money back in your home country and just work a nine to five. So I can see how some people might get themselves trapped in a a bit of a vicious cycle. And I wonder how many people that happens to. Which leads me to my next question. You've been to Chiang Mai, which is like the mecca for digital nomads. Give us your opinion on Chiang Mai. Um, Chiang Mai is actually my favorite spot so far. Even though it being a digital nomad hub, it's still the place I am going back to after I'm done with Europe. And can you describe what it's like there? People like myself, I've never been. Chiang Mai is... Basically, not the end destination of my trip, but 
that's the place where once I've gone there and seen it, I can say, well, I've done the DN thing and uh, maybe I continue or maybe I go and do something different with my life. But that, that for me is like the focal point, but I've never been there. So describe Chiang Mai to us. How many digital nomads are really there? Do you notice them? Do they stick to themselves? Do they welcome new people? Explain uh, what your experience was when you went there. So there are more digital nomads there, but if you're just reading online, it's going to sound like there's no Thai people there. There's only digital nomads, but that's not the case. They're still kind of rare to see, but at the same time, I'm not really the person who goes to all these co-working spaces and uh, basically meetups. I usually meet up with people on various websites and like Twitter and so on. And you're saying that you had a good enough time that you plan to go back to Chiang Mai. So that's terrific. Another place you've been to, and I've seen this on your venture cost profile, is Bulgaria. Bulgaria is another destination that I want to go to for various reasons. What was your experience in Bulgaria? Bulgaria is a little bit special because once we landed in Sofia, we were surprised by how things were like not clean everything looked broken it was very very poor almost and uh, that's kind of what i've heard from friends and other people who have been there Uh, but as we got further away from sofia and towards a city called plovdiv things were almost the opposite of how we first saw it so I actually heard about Plovdiv from a um, couple on YouTube called Danger and Stacy, and uh, they said that their one of their favorite favorite destinations in Europe was Plovdiv. So we were like, okay, let's go there. And then we went there, obviously being very skeptical because going to Sofia, we didn't get a first good impression. Then jumping on the train, it was, it didn't look like the train was even working. Like it did not look good. But then as we got into Plovdiv, it actually looked very good and it was very good prices. And it was a very good feeling about uh, the whole city itself, like a chill vibe. And uh, we were also very lucky with the weather, even though it was earlier this year. So it should have been a little colder. And yeah, we really enjoyed our time there. And we actually went back there a second time uh, just because we enjoyed it that much. This is perfect. So you heard of Bulgaria or you thought to go there because of the YouTube digital nomads, Daniga and Stacy, or some people pronounce it Danger and Stacy. Now, they're a couple of Kiwi travelers, aren't they? They're probably, from what I can tell, it looks like they're late 20s. Maybe Danger is early 30s and they seem to travel the world as digital nomads and YouTube travelers, and they have their own book, I think, as well. And you heard of Bulgaria through their YouTube channel? Yeah, that's correct. Same here. Now, I can't remember if it was Danger and Stacy or if it was somebody else, uh, Krista Freelancer, but I watched one of their videos, and then YouTube auto-played the other one. So it was either Krista Freelancer, who I saw in Bulgaria, and then Danger and Stacy, or the other way around. But that got me looking further into Bulgaria, and then I heard about Bainsko, the ski town with a co-work space. And now that's where I want to go. So it's funny, isn't it, how bloggers and YouTubers can influence each other this way. They say, hey, I've been here. It's pretty cool. And next thing you know, that's where people are going. Yeah, it's actually really amazing because it's honestly not a big step once you're already traveling. So hearing about a destination being good, there's nothing stopping you from going there and check it out by yourself. 
Exactly. And that's what happened to me. And that's why I'm in Kuching because I was already in Malaysia and I read this blog post. I actually read it before I even left about Kuching, but it was just one of those things I'd heard about. I hadn't really thought about. Once I got to Malaysia and I'd been in KL, I thought I'll look into this Kuching thing further, read the blog posts again. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to come here. And then one of the guys whose blog post I'd read, this detailed post about Kuching, to cut a very long story short, I met him here in Kuching, but I didn't know it was him. So I was telling this guy about, oh, I read these blogs and one of the blogs I read and I mentioned the name. He was the guy, same guy. It can be a small world, the digital nomad world. All right, so we're coming towards the end. A couple more questions for you. If you could go back to the start of your trip 18 months ago, is there any advice that you think would have helped you had you known it from the start? I think the biggest thing is to not overthink everything because things are not as tough as you make it look like before you really start traveling. I don't even think you need to read too much about places or even like purchase services to know how to be a digital nomad and so on. Like you don't really need any of that. Everything you really need to do is to go there yourself and get your own perspective of it. Because in the long run, you're going to notice that these people writing things are benefiting from people having doubts. And those doubts are honestly just made up completely. I think I know what you mean. So a lot of people are living vicariously through the YouTubers and the bloggers, people who want to travel, but they doubt themselves. So instead, they follow people who are doing the traveling. Is that kind of what you're getting at there? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, there's... It's very easy to overthink it, as you put it. It's very easy to allow the doubts to stop you. But realistically, I should have jumped on a plane six months before I did because it's a lot cheaper here than I realized. And I was just treading water in Brisbane. It's very expensive. Whereas out here, I would have been much better off, I think. So I kind of wish I'd left sooner. All right, now, this is a very tough question, probably the toughest question, Thomas, from the whole list that I like to ask. What do you think the 2029 version of you, 10 years in the future, what do you think he's going to know and he's going to wish he could come back and tell you today? What, what do you expect to be thinking about all of this in 10 years? I would probably tell myself to just stay in the present moment and enjoy the whole journey more. Because from my perspective and my background, I'm not making a ton of money. I'm not able to travel to the most expensive countries yet. And I think that's part of the whole journey itself. Like you're progressively going to more and more expensive countries as your income grows as a digital nomad. And in the beginning, it feels tough because you see all those places you want to go to. So one example was for me in Southeast Asia. I really wanted to go to Singapore and obviously Singapore being very more pricey than the other countries in Southeast Asia. It wasn't really something I could do. So there's always something to look forward to and it makes you lose track almost of how good your life really can be while already being on the road and traveling as I did as a nomad. Well, that's a terrific answer. It's a tough question. The reason I like to ask that question is because we get to record our opinions and our ideas in blogs and videos and podcasts and we can come back and reflect on them. So there will be a 2029 version of me and he will be 41 and he'll be able to look back and think, well, what did I get right? What did I get wrong? And I think it's magic, this technology that we have. 
Well, Thomas, I have enjoyed this conversation so much. It's been terrific, but we're at the end of the hour now. So what I'll do is in the show notes, put a link to venturecost.com and to any other platforms that you would like me to link to in the About Thomas section. But this is your chance to give the listeners an idea of where they can find your work, what you're planning to do with the future, anything you want to say to the listeners to wrap up the call. Now is your chance. All right. So I think the easiest place to find me is on Twitter. You can put a handle under my name, and it's at Thomas Voxel. Uh, other than that, you can also follow me on VentureCost, obviously. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. I'm not really big on social media, but you can definitely find me on Twitter. Thank you very much, Thomas. This has been a terrific chat, and I wish you every luck and fortune with your VentureCost platform. I'll be using it. People can track my costs when I'm in Vietnam, where I'm planning to go for three months. So people will be able to see how much does Ho Chi Minh City cost? And then I might go to Da Nang or who knows where I'll end up. But all of my costs will be there on a profile that I'll have on VentureCost.com. So I'll link to that in the show notes as well. But I wish you every luck, Thomas. Thank you so much for coming on episode four of the Nomad Skeptic podcast. We've been recording this on May 28, 2019. Thomas has been coming to you from the UK and where his house sitting, apparently. And uh, I'm coming to you from Kuching here in Borneo, Malaysia. I've had a lot of fun. We'll see you for episode five sometime in the future. Here is Sereno to take us out. And until next time, you guys, take care of yourselves. You've been listening to the Nomad Skeptic Podcast, brought to you by nomadskeptic.com. New articles, podcasts, and videos posted regularly at nomadskeptic.com. Join the Nomad Skeptic Discord server and be part of the conversation. And wherever you are in the world, have an awesome day.